I have, for the first time today, got a screen in front of me with all of your faces. So it is so cool to be actually preaching to real people and so uh, that I can see, you know. Um, it's lovely to be able to interact a bit more than normal with so many of you. And so please switch your camera on if you can. It's good to see you guys. How's it, Denise? Lovely painting you've got there. It's, um, I mean, I know that we're not together. And I know we're not all here. Don't get me wrong. And, and, and I do wish we were. But this has provided us a unique opportunity. It's so nice to be in some of your homes, even right now, as, um, as we're in your homes and uh, you get to be in my home from time to time like this, and it is a real, real treat. Anyway, um, if you don't know me, maybe you're joining us, maybe a friend invited you along, and, and that's great. Hey, Common Grounders, I hope you know you can invite your mates along through to the Zoom meeting. If you've been invited by a friend, I want you to know I'm so glad that you joined us today. My name is Luke, and you're joining us in week five out of seven weeks of our Origin series, right? So there's only two more left. Next week, we begin unpacking the, the, the big one, really. We, we start to look at the origin of suffering. I mean, if God is so good, and if this world is so good, what has gone wrong with our world? Why is there so much suffering? How is it that God can be all-powerful and all-good, and yet there be so much suffering? I'm going to be preaching about that next week, Sunday. Today, though, we're continuing the theme of who are we as human beings, and where do we fit in the story? What should we be doing? We've been exploring this for the last few weeks. And uh, today, we look at the origin of male and female Male and female, and uh, the origin, the first marriage. In fact, we look at the first marriage in the Bible. A very brief recap before we continue. If you're joining us, we're working through the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. We've seen so far, God is all-powerful. God is uh, majestic. He is, he is incredibly intelligent, incredibly creative. He's the source of an immense power. And yet he gives birth to this world out of the overflow of the Trinitarian love that is within the Godhead. We see at the apex of creation is humanity. God set us in charge. He gave us guardianship to tend uh, to this world and to extend this beautiful um, Eden, translated, uh, Eden, we call it Eden, but it's, it's actually the word paradise, to extend all over the globe. And this is the work of human beings, to fill the earth and to order the earth in order for flourishing. We saw last week how we as human beings are to give, be given to work. It, working is a good thing, a gift from God. And to rest as God's image bearers, not God ourselves. We are limited. We are finite. We, we, we rest. In fact, God even rested as a kind of model to show us how to live. We work, and today, the Sabbath, we stop working, we stop worrying, and we rest in the goodness of God, knowing that He is at work on our behalf in the world. Today, as we look at week five of uh, our origin series, we look at the origin of male and female and the origin of marriage. Let's read together Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 22, and we'll read further to 25 a little later. But let's read together from Genesis 2, 18 to 22. Follow along in your Bibles, highlight on your own device. Feel free to do so as you please. Let's read together. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. You see that? It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, it was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable, did you see that word again? Helper was found. And so the Lord God um, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs And then closed up the place with flesh. Let's pray together. 
Father God, would you speak to us from your word? It just seems astonishing, Lord, that we're looking at three chapters written thousands of years ago, and yet from them we can extrapolate the design for life. It just is amazing. For all the debate that's gone on around these texts, it is extraordinary how rich they are for finding the blueprint for life. And we ask that today, Holy Spirit, you would speak to us in our homes. I'm full of faith, God, you would speak to us. Whether you're a seasoned Christ follower, you pray that prayer. Whether you're still grappling with what it means to follow Jesus. And if you want to go all in, I pray, God, speak to us today. Amen. Okay, let's start with verse 18. It is not good, God said, for the man to be alone. I'll make a suitable helper. First point, it's not good for men or women that matter to be alone. Now, this isn't saying everybody needs to find a spouse. This is before the marriage. The marriage happens a little later, I think right about verse 24. This is before marriage. It's not good for men to be alone. It's not good for women to be on their own. It's possible to make the mistake and read this text like this. God made this dude, Adam. Everything was wonderful. It was going so well. But after some time, God scratched his head and he thought to himself, wow, something's not right here. You know what we need? We need to add a woman to this picture and then it will make it better. That's not what's going on. This would be a wrong reading of this text. Rather, this is God's way of teaching us as human beings how much we as men need women and how much women need men. This is, this is God teaching us that neither gender has everything that they need or we need to fulfill the creative mandate. Neither gender has all that we need. And, and I'm not just talking about making babies. Okay, this is the full creative mandate to fill the earth, to order the world. It can only be done as both genders display the image of God and work that out in the world. And this text is not showing us so much women as an afterthought and men can do all of this. That is nonsense. This text is God showing us the interdependence of the genders. Therefore, any system that, or view that suppresses one gender as kind of less valuable or important pushes back against the very design of God. Let's read again verse 18 through 20. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a suitable helper for him. Verse 20, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. What have we got here we're reading today? We're reading a second creation account. It is the same event that happened in Genesis chapter 1, except double-clicked, double-clicked for, uh, for this one aspect, the creation of human beings. It's a zooming in on the specific part where human beings were created. So far, in the process of out of order, of bringing order out of chaos, so far in the, in the process of filling the earth, we've seen a pattern. This pattern is a pattern of complementary pairs. On day one, we saw light and darkness, right? Or light and darkness, right? On day two, we saw sky and water. Then we saw land and sea, sun and moon. All of these are complementary pairs. Neither one of them is sufficient in their own for life to flourish. And it's this pattern of complementary pairs that we see continue with human beings. They're complementary pairs. It's male and female, two different genders coming together to complete the whole image of God. They're complementary, which means that they're different, but they fit together. They're different, but they fit together. This is so important that we get this in church life. 
We get this in family life. We get this in the whole of society. We need each other in order for society, for the church, for the family to flourish. We need both genders working together where neither one of them is suppressed or oppressed. What can we say about the differences we see here? Well, number one, we just see that they are different. They're not the same. We can see it physically. You know, where she goes in, he goes out, and they fit together quite literally physically. Generally, he is bigger than she, but generally, again, there's not a whole lot more specific detail that's given as to these differences. What we can see clearly here, though, is they are of equal importance. One is not more valuable than the other. Both are of exactly the same equal value in the eyes of God and before one another as well, right? In fact, the pattern here is, a, is that the man, the men, delight in the woman, right? Uh, and I think, too, the woman delights in the man, too. It's, it's a genuine appreciation for one another that we see in this text, and neither one of them can do it on their own. Something must be said of this word helper. It's a crucial one. Uh, helper in English can go many different ways, right? The Hebrew word is Isa konegdo. Um, what we see, it's not a helper like an assistant to kind of take care of all the things I don't want to do. I'll just clear that up for once and for all. It's not that, Helper, actually, is a connector. The Hebrew word here is used regularly to refer to God. When Israel is in a military battle and Israel is losing, God comes along as Israel's helper, and therefore the war is won. God himself is described as the helper in the same word that is used for the woman. So the context is Israel in war. Israel is losing, but the helper comes along. And with the help of the helper, together they win the war. This is far, far, far more healthier picture than I think many of us have when it comes to the word helper. Okay, so we've understood something that's different, but complementary. Both of them, neither one can do it on their own. And I'm speaking so much about gender in society and not the need for each of us to find a significant other. However, the passage then progresses and now we shift gears to marriage. And uh, I want to give us three points I'm going to be making just so you know where I'm going. Three points on the subject of marriage. Number one is a caution, beware. Number two, savor. And number three, cling. Beware, savor, and cling. Let's read from verse 22 to 25 together. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, now this is bone out of my bones and flesh out of my flesh. She shall be called, wow, man, I mean woman, for she was taken out of the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What a powerful phrase. I said uh, uh, the first point I want to make is a caution today. The caution is beware idolatry in marriage. Beware idolatry in marriage. When Adam sees Eve, he literally explodes in poetic song, right? The first piece of art recorded in the Bible. Do you know this? The first piece of art recorded in the Bible. In fact, if you open your uh, Bible right now and you look at this chapter, you will see it's inset from the margin or offset from the margin. One of those words is correct. Offset from the margin, I think it is. And it's there because it's not normal writing. It's not prose. It's Adam bursting into poetic song. When Adam sees his bride coming towards him, like me, he breaks into tears of joy. But unlike me, he bursts into a poem of gratitude and joy and appreciation. 
I would have, babe, if we, if we just had more time. Um, here's the key. But it, both in God's eyes and in Adam's eyes, marriage is very good. We can see that. The caution is that throughout the scriptures, time after time, when God gives something very good to his people, we tend to replace God with the very good thing that he gives us. We can take the best part of marriage and lead us to find in our spouse what we only really should find in God. And we start to make an idol of the very gift that God gives. I mean, we do this with anything. God blesses you with lots of wealth. It's amazing how quickly you start to find your security and your meaning and your value in your wealth. The very thing that God has given you, that's a good thing that he's given you. You replace God with it. We do this with marriage as well, with our spouse. We start to derive, for for me as as a husband, from my wife, all that I need to, to make me happy and to give me joy. We idolize marriage. And we do this not even only when we marry. We do this as singles as well. I can speak for a second to those who are single amongst us today. It's possible, in fact, I've seen this in the church a lot, that in the church in particular, although also in Hollywood movies and society, we've inadvertently overvalued marriage and undervalued singleness. Like some kind of holy grail has been discovered in the context of marriage, right? And singles are left feeling half-complete human beings until they find their significant other. This notion that when I meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright, then my life will begin. Then I can start to live. Um, The Disney story does us no favors here. Uh, Pretty much the script for most Disney movies, or not all, but certainly many of them, is, uh, oh, man and woman, there's tension. They find, they overcome all the obstacles. They find each other, and then there's happiness and joy. And then what? They live happily ever after because that's the story and what a lot of nonsense that's not like that it's this it's that when I find the other person all my loneliness will suddenly disappear all my insecurities will suddenly disappear and my life will have meaning Uh, the famous phrase you complete me what a load of bollocks It causes so much pressure in our culture, especially as a single person, to find somebody because it's almost like life is on pause until you find that person. So much pressure to get married and tempting to hitch your wagon to the first train that comes by and grab a hold of the wrong person. Singles, marriage is not the holy grail. We'll speak to it a little bit later. I can speak this Beware idolizing marriage is what we're making the point and secondly applied to married couples. Within marriage itself, the pain of idolatry is immense. It happens when we base all our hopes on our spouse to fulfill us, to make us happy and to complete us. Expectations are unfair. And the weight of that expectation on both the relationship and the spouse inevitably will lead to disappointment and disillusionment. I thought this was supposed to fix my life. I thought this was supposed to make me happy. And now, 10 years in, you know, I'm not not happy. I still still have some of the same issues I came in here with. And there's disillusionment that can come. And so to both marrieds and singles, I want to say this, and and we'll, we'll come back to this at the end. It is only in making Christ the ultimate one in your life that you gain the proper perspective by which to enjoy this good gift. It frees my spouse, whether current or future, if you're a single person, from having to bear the load that they were never created to carry. With, without Christ anchoring the full weight of my identity and my being, every good thing in my life is vulnerable to having to bear that. But when I make Christ the, the center of my being, the one in whom I lean everything on, 
to, just, to justify me and to give me meaning in life, then the good gifts that he gives me are freed from that pressure and they're able to flourish in the life-giving way. And I'm not trying to stretch from them more than they were ever designed to give. First point is beware. Second point, savor God's design. Let's read it again together. I love to read it many times in the message because it's the story that God is speaking to us from. It's not do this and don't do this. It's, it's the narrative of life that speaks to us of how we should live. And it's in washing over many times that we see God's pattern. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he'd taken out of the man. It's not from his feet where she's beneath him. It's not from his head where she's over him. It's from his ribs side by side where they flourish together and, and brought her to the man. The man said, now this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is that poem. She shall be called, wow, man, because, uh, because she was taken out of the man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Such a privilege for me yesterday. I got to marry a couple um, out in Stellenbosch. Uh, it's one of the privileges of being a pastor is I get to marry people from time to time. And it's amazing how this is depicted in a wedding. It's, a wedding starts with the, the groom who's waiting at the front of the church for his bride. He has pursued her. He has won her heart. And now she will give her heart to him. There's a father who walks the bride down the aisle. The whole assembly stands to honor her, to behold her beauty. She is pure and spotless. And she's presented before him. The two take their hands and they literally cling to one another. And act of binding themselves to one another, the two becoming one flesh. At the same time, they are forsaking all others in devotion to one another as they declare this through symbols. They sign signatures. They speak vows. They exchange rings. All of these depict what the Bible calls a covenant, a promise that should never be broken as they speak their vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, all the days of our lives. And as I saw that couple yesterday, I could see, I could hear it in his voice. He understood the weight and the magnitude of that covenant promise he was making. It's exactly what we see mirrored in this text. You see God, the Father, who brings the bride Eve to her husband is waiting and then he sees her and he delights in praise of how wonderful she is at the prospect of being able to do life. The two of them forsake, leave behind fathers and mothers in order to be joined to one another and to live life together. It's a, it's, a, it's a glorious thing. What the Bible calls is a covenant. It's a covenant promise that is the foundation for God's pattern in marriage. What I'm saying is when, when I make that promise, I'm saying that I am going to love and I am going to serve you regardless of what happens in life for the rest of my life. It, it, it's both the most binding thing you can do and yet at the same time the most freeing thing you can do. It's incredibly binding. You're saying literally it's you and me against the rest of the world for the rest of our lives. I am tying myself to you in an unbreakable way. It's binding. Make no mistake about it. But at the same time, it is the most freeing thing you can do. Think about it. What you're saying to that person is you're saying regardless of what happens in our fortunes, in, 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 for richer, for poorer, regardless in whether our income goes up or down, regardless of what happens in our health situation, Regardless of what happens, even in my own emotional or, you know what I'm getting at here is that through sin, 
coming into the world and coming into, remember, coming into our own lives as human beings. Even our own orientation, all of our orientations have been bent out of shape. Instead of for me, um, desiring only for my wife all the days of my life, there's times when my, my own orientation goes out of whack. Instead of being completely aligned to Lauren, there's moments when I'm tempted to wonder, Lady, ladies, men, you guys too, you know, it might, it might be in the pages of some romance novel you're reading and you think, I wish my husband was more like, and instead of your, your, your orientation being exclusively for your spouse, our orientation pulls us to want to, Look to others as well. What I'm doing when I'm making that covenant promise, I'm saying regardless of my wealth, regardless of what, whether COVID comes or doesn't go away, regardless of even the changes that happen within me, because you and I will change as we go through life. I am tying myself to you. Why, why is it so freeing? Because you are not a slave to your circumstances anymore. You are not a slave to your income. You're not a slave to your own even passions and lusts in life. You are rising above and you are free to become the human being that you really want to be. And you break the power of circumstances to shape you, you get to rise above and become more than you would be if you were just a slave to your passions or your wealth or even your health. It's incredibly freeing. I saw this lived out. I mean, I see this lived out in many friends, but in preparing this message, I was doing a bit of a prayer walk and I was reminded of a couple of the church I was from in East London. I'm not going to mention their names because I haven't spoken to them. When Lauren and I were married, the first marriage course we ever did was led by this couple. And um, man, it wasn't like months after the marriage course. She got very, very, very ill. Uh, she went into complete kidney failure and um, she, to the point where there were, needed to be permanent pipes that were put into her so she could go to dialysis by a week or every sec, uh, twice a week. Um, I mean, she lost her strength. She lost her health. She lost everything. She was so reduced in her capacity physically. And, and if you were to go to that marriage and you were to say, is it a two-way street? I'd say, absolutely, that marriage is not a two-way street. He was needing to work. He was needing to run the home. Uh, and she was totally bound by her sickness and she couldn't do anything. And yet, day after day, week after week, this went on for years, I could not, I mean, I was blown away at his absolute devotion to his wife. And it couldn't have been because he was deriving something from her. It couldn't have been that she was loving him and, and he was responding back. He, he, must have, he must have loved her beyond even the love that he was receiving because in the moment of her, her sickness, she wasn't able to give love like she wanted to. And yet he did, day after day, week after week. He just devoted himself to her. It was one of the most special, beautiful things I've ever seen. In times when he received nothing in return, he loved and cherished his wife. Why? Because he loved her, because it covenanted to love her. It wasn't based on her performance. So many marriages today in our culture are based on, well, you do your bit, I do my bit. It's a 50-50 kind of love. As long as you're loving me, I'll love you. And as long as you're making me feel this way, then I'll do my bit as well. This was not what was going on there. This was someone who rose above even health and said, I'm going to love you with all that I have. This kind of love is hard. It's, it's, it's this, this is covenant love. It's a love where you're in it not to get, but you're, you're in it to give to another human being. It's, this is the kind of love. It's not a feeling. It, it, it's, it's a verb. It's something you do. It's an act of your will. It leads to amazing feelings, feelings that come and go with the seasons of life. But yes, it does lead to feelings, but it's bigger than that. I, I think this kind of love is wanting God's absolute best for another human being and being willing to sacrifice to see them have it. 
And it's this dance of two human beings completely focused on the other. And as these two people focus on how do I serve, how do I bless, how do I encourage, how do I love the other, that they in, in, in turn get love splashed back on them. It's, it's exactly what Jesus said in a different context to his followers. He said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? There he was in heaven. He lacked nothing. He had everything he could ever want within the Trinity and the abundance of heaven. And what did he do? He gave it all up. And he became an ordinary human being. And he lived a life on our behalf. And then he died a sinner's death. He had everything and became nothing in order that you and I who had nothing could gain everything in him. It is a selfless love not to get but to give because you have a vision of the other human being and who they could be in Christ. We live in a culture that's got this so wrong today. We think the meaning of life is found in, in being true to who you are. And so if I just cast off all the restraints and all the things that hold me back, then I'll be free. And when I'm free, then I'll be happy. And so we pursue happiness above all other, all other things. And it infects the way we do marriage. And time after time, we see marriages split up because at the end of the day, you hear the phrase, we just don't make each other happy. We just stop making each other happiness. No, happiness happens in a marriage when you're not in it for what you can get, but you're in it for what you can give to the other human being. And two people, even, even at times when it's lopsided and it's only one giving, it leads to eventually happiness coming to both of you, even in seasons when you're not getting in return. We need to see ourselves as spouses, as encouragers, as supporters, as cheerleaders, as spouses. And honestly, as I say this, I'm speaking to myself here. I know how easy this is to, when my orientation goes out of whack and I am focused on what I can get and what makes me happy. You know what it does? It makes me become critical as a husband because I think that happiness will come as I fix or change something in my wife. I heard today recently, it was the story of one of our faces on the screen. It was their 45th wedding anniversary yesterday. And, uh, and she was speaking about uh, one of the keys to a lasting and life-giving marriage was actually just learning to accept the other person for who they are and not trying to change them. And we do this when we, when we stop being in it for what we can get. Because if I'm in it to get, then I need to make sure that you change shape because then I get better. No, no, no. When we're in it to give, I can love and accept you just as you are and encourage you and watch you flourish to the place where you become more like Christ. Because ultimately the goal of marriage is not happiness, it's holiness. You get happiness as a byproduct, but it's holiness. It's helping to bring your spouse to the glorious image of Jesus. I mean, I really have a vision one day that, I mean, it's not going to happen like this. This is just a weird thing that Luke's concocted in his mind to help him understand this. But one day I'll stand before Jesus, the one who is ultimately Lauren's bride, far more than I am. And I'll be able to present her to him as better than she would have been had it not been for my place in her life. This is what marriage is about. And you get, you get it as a byproduct, happiness. But, but that's not the goal. We see this depicted in verse 25. We see, not depict, we see the result of this kind of marriage. Verse 25, they were both naked and they felt no shame, which means, let me just check our time here. Sorry, guys. Oh, we're doing okay. Not much longer. Right. Which means that you know everything there is to know about me and you love me. It means that I'm completely vulnerable in every way. I'm fully known, and yet I'm completely accepted. There is no sense that they've disappointed their spouse. 
There's no sense that, that they're being disappointed by their spouse or that their spouse is disappointed with them. They are completely naked and there is no shame. Doesn't that sound beautiful? But even right now, it's beautiful. It, it even sounds right to you, I'm sure. But it's one thing to know something's right. It's another thing to know, uh, to actually want that thing. But it's a completely different animal altogether to know how do we get there. And this is my last point. Number three, cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. Over the last 18 months, we've seen our world turned upside down. The next 10 years of midlife crises, I think, have been brought forward into the previous nine months. And it's left many of us as human beings, as people feeling unsatisfied, insecure, ill-equipped to be the kind of spouse, maybe parent, friend that we want to be, right? And it's left many of us wondering if the next career, the next country, or the next companion would fix these deep longings. I want to say to you today, none of these things can do it. We need a source of joy that can never run dry, that can never get sick, that can never be corrupted. And the Bible tells us where we can find that. You see, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul takes these exact words we've been reading from Genesis, and he develops them further to the context of marriage. Take a read through it for homework. I really would encourage you. But uh, let's read verse 31 and 32 together. See, the exact phrase we've read today. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But then look what he does here. Look how he develops this. Verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, after Paul finished explaining about the beauty and the complexity of marriage, And it's worth taking a read through for homework, as I said. He says, but this is a profound mystery. I'm speaking about Jesus and the church, his bride. That that there's a covenant that's made in marriage that's actually a mirror, if you will. It's meant to reflect the covenant between Christ. He's saying our earthly marriages are like a shadow or a pointer or a taster to the true wedding that's with Christ for every human being. I'm making a case that there's no perfect marriage on earth, but there is one spouse who truly is perfect, who will never let you down. And here's the thing, we're all invited into that marriage. And when you, when you, When you see that instead of a man leaving his father and mother, Christ left the comforts of heaven to come to earth. That through his sacrificial love, we can gain a chance at receiving ultimate love and identity. The kind of love and identity that a marriage, as wonderful as it is, is just never big enough to provide for us. That Christ's love is the only thing that could satisfy the very deepest parts of our soul and never disappoint us. Then then you're free to enjoy God's gift. I'd like to make two quick applications, first to married couples and then to singles. To married couples, two points of application. Number one, make Jesus the model for how you do marriage. Make Jesus the model for how you love your spouse. Rightly understand that your marriage is not the ultimate marriage, your marriage to your spouse. It's a secondary one. It's a derivative one from your marriage and your union to Christ. And rather... It's meant to be modeled on Christ's love for us. And so let his devotion be a model for your devotion to your spouse. Let his grace and his love be a model for how you offer grace and love to your spouse. But here's the thing. It's clear that this kind of love requires a source 
greater than you can muster yourself. And so my second point in applying to marriages is make Jesus the source for how you love your spouse. Make Jesus the source for how you love your spouse. To love this way through all seasons of life, it can flatten your batteries. It really can. Because life is hard. I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to be a doomsday prophet, but if you've lived any length of years in your life, you know that it's not all peaches and cream. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Some of you are facing challenges right now that you never even thought you would face, and you're in the middle of them right now. To love and to be this kind of human being in the midst of anything that can happen in life, it means you need a source outside of yourself that is always there, that never runs dry, that has your best interests at heart, whom is readily accessible, and you can lean on in moments of need to be the human being that you want to be, even when you don't have that within you. That, I put to you, is Jesus. And you can come to him to be the man, to be the woman, to be the husband, to be the wife that you can never be on your own. Otherwise, if you make your love and the way you love dependent on your spouse's love for you, if you make sure your love is fueled by your spouse's love alone, there'll be seasons when there won't be enough. And, and when, when she's going through something or he's going through something and you're not getting enough back, then you're tempted to, well, if you're not doing your bit, I'm not going to do mine. And what happens is you start to spiral down and you experience diminishing returns as a couple. And it's not long before that thing runs dry. I'm saying the only well deep enough and infinite enough to sustain this kind of radically different marriage than anything in our culture is Christ. You put him at the center and you draw from him. Your marriage can look completely different. And then lastly, for singles. Two points for singles among us. It's only in the gospel that we realize these two very important things. Number one, marriage isn't everything Marriage isn't everything. I want to break the lie today that says you'll only ever be somebody when you're with somebody. It is absolute nonsense. The Bible tells us that in Christ you have everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need for living a full life as a single person. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and he actually said to them, I forget if it's 1 Corinthians 7 or 9, Oh, Pete Jenks, I know you're watching and you can correct me right now and help me out here. But uh, uh, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and he said, um, he said, I wish you all were like me. He's saying, I wish you all were single like me because then you'd be free to serve Jesus better. The Bible paints a really high picture of marriage, but, it, but it, you can make a case that it, pr- it presents an even higher at times, certainly equal case for the high view of singleness as well. Jesus was single. Paul was single. And so I really just want to break that nonsense. In Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Why? Because my second point is this. You already have somebody. You already have someone in Christ. And so it's not a matter of just saying no to a bunch of things if that's what you need to do. It's a matter of saying yes to Christ and knowing that he is sufficient for you. Can I pray for us this morning as we land? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. We thank you for the wonderful good gift of marriage. Even as single people watching this, there's such a gift that comes to society through the union of marriage, Jesus. I want to pray, Lord Jesus, through these different points. I wonder if you do business with Jesus right now. God, have I 
Have I made marriage more than it ever was meant to be? Have I created an idol of my marriage? Or, as a single person, have I created an idolized picture of what marriage will do for me? And it's actually replaced what Christ can do for me right now and who, what Christ will do in me. I wonder if that's you. Take a second to speak that to Jesus yourself. Wherever you are, Jesus, it's you. you, you you're the ultimate spouse in my life. Forgive me, Christ, where I've forgotten that. I've taken this vision of a good gift, all this good gift you've given me, and I've replaced you with it. That's you. I leave you to carry on praying those prayers. Do them personally. I'd love to bring another group of people to Jesus as well. It's those who just, in our marriages, we've realized we've, we've not savored God's pattern. We've got stuck into this kind of personal happiness. Our orientation has been self-focused or, or has wandered from our spouse. And right now, you want to come back to another model. There's some conversations you need to have in your marriage, I'm sure. But right now, it's coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, help me to pattern my marriage after your marriage to me. Help me to be the spouse that doesn't have to fix my spouse, but, but, has to, but loves them through whatever comes, Jesus. Because you are my source. I pray, Lord Jesus, for hope to come to stretched marriages, for grace to come to stretched couples. Come, Holy Spirit. You meet us and enable us to do what we could never do on our own. God, I pray for marriages in Common Ground South Penn that we would learn to love each other the way you loved us and in so doing, model something to our, uh, to our little pocket of the world where you've put us as lights that is completely different, that it would, it would come across in the way we bry with our friends, it would come across in the way we camp with our mates, it would come across in the way we walk on the beach and, and watch sports events and fetch kids from school and do business in the workplace, that somehow our world would see that this group of people have loved one another in their marriages in an altogether different way. I wonder how they do this. And God, let it be not because we've worked hard at just getting you as a model, but because we found you as a source. I pray we would discover you as a source, both as married people and as single people. Jesus, we affirm you as our source. Amen.